in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, God has told Moses that he would do three things. He would bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He would do it by great judgments, and he would do it in a way that the Israelites, or excuse me, the Egyptians would know that he is God. And he used the phrase that I am the Lord. And so we refer back to what he said when he was at talking to Moses, and Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell them that I am who I am. And so we look at that name, that Yahweh name, and we understand that to, to the Egyptians, they don't understand who this person would be, who this God would be. If, if you look at anything in Scripture or in, in history and you know the situations and you can do the study on Google yourself, the Egyptians had hundreds of gods that they would worship, but not the one true God. In fact, as we look at this, we're going to be looking at it, we'll see that they believed that the, the God on earth was their Pharaoh. Pharaoh meant son of, the, of Ra, the God. And so they believed that, that Pharaoh was their God on earth, and he was representing all of the other gods in history. So Je Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God adds that he was doing something else very important against all the gods of egypt he said i will execute my judgment so the judgments god would carry out would be on a certain level against the egyptian gods god's plagues these things these judgment that he was going to be doing was going to be against the egyptian gods pointing out that they really aren't anything in doing this, he would teach a lesson to both the Egyptians and the Israelites, who by now had been in Egypt for a number of generations. And we, we see that Scripture tells us when they did finally leave Egypt, the day that they left Egypt, it was 430 years from when Jacob and his family entered Egypt. So 430 years, they have been in this, in this land of Egypt, and they drifted far away from the, from the following of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who followed God. Numerous times throughout Scripture, God said that he would do what he did so that the world may know that I am the Lord. The first commandment says this, You shall have no other gods before me, meaning no other gods Accept me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, to the one true God, except through me. Egyptian culture, as I said, was very idolatrous, with multitudes of gods and goddesses. Many of those were assumed to take the form of animals, so that Egyptians considered bulls, cows, rams, cats, crocodiles, cobras, frogs, and various insects and birds were sacred. 
Now, you understand at the very beginning of time, when man became upon this earth, there became, became a point where we began to, there was a division of worship. Every, everybody's inclined to worship at some point in time. You're created for that. In fact, we're created to serve and worship God, okay? But from the very beginning, after, after man sinned and left the garden, we see that the, the division of worship was you either worshipped the creator or you worshipped created things. So whenever something happened that they couldn't explain, they found another god, like a roach. I don't know if that was a god or not. But there was some other god that they developed. And so in the Egyptian culture, there were hundreds and hundreds of these gods. And each of the plagues that God sent was a direct challenge to one or more of the gods and goddesses of Egypt. And while the Egyptians would have seen such things as locusts and biting insects before, what made these plagues unique is that God divinely intensified these plagues and brought them on the Egyptians as a at a time of his choosing. They came exactly when God, through Moses, said they would happen to show that God was the one behind them all. In fact, there are many theologians and many, many teachers that say the plagues were just a natural occurrence of things. Well, if that's the case, which maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't believe so, but if that's the case, isn't it miraculous that God told Moses when they were going to happen before they happened? You know, it's pretty profound when Moses went to Pharaoh and all these things and basically said, this is what's going to happen. Tomorrow, you're going to wake up with frogs in your ovens. I don't know if he said that, but that's what happened. So let's begin with the we're going to be looking at what happened in some of these things. We're actually going to be, be beginning before the first plague with the changing of the shepherd's rod into serpents. And let's look at what these are. Well, first off, we see that the Egyptian god, the serpent god, was Wajet. And Egyptian goddesses were created, creator deities. And the project protectors of the pharaohs in the form of the cobra, vulture, or lioness. The two protectors of the realm of Egypt were originally Nekbet, a vulture goddess, and Wadjet, a cobra goddess of, the lower, of lower Egypt. The fact that Yahweh turned the rod into a cobra suggests that he is the one who holds true sovereignty over the god from whom they sought protection. So what God is saying is, if you think you're getting protection from this serpent God, watch this. I have control even over your serpents. This emphasized by the fact that Yahweh's serpent even swallowed up the serpent of the magicians. You know, the magicians in that were able to produce, uh, throw their rods down, and uh, so they became cobras. But then, but then Moses's rod or Aaron's rod that had become a serpent went and ate all the others. God says, I have supreme power over all of your gods. Now, as we're going through these, think of one thing. The Egyptians, and the Pharaoh especially, placed all of their belief, everything, all of their belief on all of these gods. 
if anything happened at all, it was because they sacrificed or they worshipped these gods. They did something to please these gods or, to, or to, to excite them to do something for them, whether it be fertility of the land or whatever it is. This was their everything. Their gods were their everything. And Pharaoh, as I said, was the ruler over all of them. So then we see the first plague. The first plague was waters turned into blood. Now this is referring to a couple Egyptian gods. It was directed against the Nile River, which was the life and the heart of Egypt. Egypt was a desert country, and its economy and livelihood depended on the Nile. Its crops were irrigated by the Nile, and its fields depended on the fertile soil that were washed in by the river when it was at flood stage. We've seen flood stages around here where water from a river goes into a, a field and deposits nice, rich soil in those fields that acts as fertilizer for those. That's what this did. So what happened to this lifeblood of the nation? Well, while this plague was primarily directed against the Nile River, it went beyond that. All other water sources were affected, including irrigation streams and pools, and even water stored in pitchers and buckets in their homes. It turned to blood. Terrible disaster. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and going to your commode to wash your face and reaching into the bowl to put water on your face to wash your face, and it's blood. Can you imagine pouring a pitcher into a glass to drink some water, and it's blood? The whole lifeblood of the country was poisoned and undrinkable. It was a complete disaster. The Egyptian supply of water was now a toxic mess. The fish one of the major food services, were all wiped out. They all dry, di died and laid belly up on the, on the shore. So how was this judgment against the Egyptian gods? Because the Nile was so important to the Egyptians, they worshipped several gods who were responsible for watching over it. The great god Khnum, usually represented as a human male with a ram's head. You see that on the left side of the screen up there. He was responsible for tons of fresh soil that would fertilize the land. He was also honored as a god of the fishes. The Is that plural? Fishes? Is that plural or is it fish? Just fish. Okay. Birdus? Birds? No. And marshes, which is why he was often depicted with marsh plants on his head. You can see there on that head is, is some marsh plants on there. One of Egypt's trinity of greatness, greatest gods, was also Osiris. But then we look at the also, the, there is a god, the god of Hopi, which is also a god of fertility in the land. And he was one that was directly over the Nile River and basically responsible for all of its, its coming and going. So here's an important lesson this. While God is in the business of defeating all of the idols and gods of this world, which we oftentimes have, you know, we've said the root of all sin is self, and if we, you know, sometimes economics is a god to us. Our job is a god to us, isn't it? 
We think we can do all things through these things, that God is in the business of trying to show out, show that he is the God over all of these things. So he's a God of just judgment and justice, and we see an important lesson in here that God is delaying this effect. He he didn't kill everything in the rivers immediately, but it took like three, three or four days where the water was turned into blood and nobody could drink or eat anything. Now, if you've ever gone for even a day without water, you know how thirsty you get. They even dug in the sands to try to find clean water and couldn't find it. It was all blood. So then the second plague is the frogs. It was described in the first part of Exodus chapter 8. A large number of frogs would not have been unusual because the Nile had plenty of marshes, especially when the waters backed up and left little pools. It was a perfect natural breeding ground for frogs. But this plague was different. The frogs were considered a manifestation of the goddess Heket, who is depicted there, goddess of birth and, and wife of the creator of the world. Heket was depicted with a head of a frog and the body of a woman. The frogs were viewed as sacred in Egypt because they lived in two worlds. They lived in water and in land. And they were so sacred, considered so sacred, that, that anybody accidentally stepping on one of them could be punished by death. Don't step on that frog. It's holy. Give me a break. Notice two ironies here. This goddess is supposed to be the goddess who controls birth, but in this plague, literally millions and millions of frogs were overflowing the land to where they, the birth rate was out of control, to where they were flooding everything, covering everything in their houses, in their beds, in their ovens. They had frog bread. And accidentally killing one by stepping on it was punishable by death. The Egyptians literally could not walk anywhere without fear of stepping on a frog and squashing it. But in so doing, they were violating their own laws and sentencing themselves to death. Finally, the people had to go out and gather them into large mounds of decaying, stinking frogs. Can you imagine what this place is like after the second plague? You've got the river Nile had turned into blood. All the fish had died and were belly up on the shore, rotting and stinking. Now frogs had covered the land, and it's rotting and stinking. Yeah, I would cough too. <clears throat> so much for a sacred animal. Here God shows that he's even more powerful than frog. Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Who would even think that God's not more powerful than a frog? But in their days, that was one of those gods that meant a lot to them. The third plague was lice. Found in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, this plague was most likely directed at Geb, the god of the earth, or the god of the dust of the earth. What does Scripture say that was the covenant with Abraham? I will make your seed as numerous as the dust of the earth, the sand of the seashores, the stars of the heaven. What did God create man out of? The dust of the earth. So this belief that Geb, Geb was over the dust of the earth, believed that this 
God, Geb, was in charge of creating everything. So what did God do? He turned the dust into gnats, into lice, excuse me. And all of this dust of the earth became lice that infested the people with lice. It's interesting, too, how this affected the priests of the gods of Egypt. These gods, these priests of the gods of Egypt, who were supposed to be in charge of all of this, in fact, they probably had priests for each of the gods to honor and worship each god and make sure they sacrificed and make sure they pleased each god. These priests had to per perform many cleansing rituals throughout the day to make sure that they were pure and clean for their services as a priest. And can you imagine when they became infected with lice and could not get rid of them? They couldn't worship. They couldn't please their gods. So God has even taken control of their worship and their overhead. Fourth plague, swarms. On the surface, the next plague sounds a lot like a plague of lice. Lice. The phrase of flies that we see in the scripture here was added by later translators and isn't in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew simply says the word for swarms or buzzing flying insects. Likely scenario based on this is they had swarms which they they looked at, they worshipped many different different types of insects as well. And the one god that this was aimed at the most was Amun-Re, Amun-Ra. This was the creator god, the god of the sun, one who controlled the sun, the skies, the, the light, the wind, everything else. And when it says that the winds swept all these swarms in from the sea and covered the land, there was they couldn't even see the sky because the swarms were so thick. So God did that one to defeat their God of the sky. Fifth plague, disease on livestock. Now, if you have blood that's killing the fish, the frogs are dying and stinking heavens, the lice have infested you, and you see then that some of these things get on the animals and the livestock, and it says a plague came against the animals and the livestock. This plague was created an enormous economic disaster for the Egyptians. It affected their food, their transportation, their military capability, their farming capacity, their economic goods that were produced by these livestock. Everything they had and defended, depended on was by these livestock. In India, we see that, that cows are a sacred animal. In fact, in India, to the Hindus, cows are the highest, the highest of life form. When you are reincarnated over and over, the last step of reincarnation to the Hindu is to become a cow. In America, if you call somebody a cow, it's not a nice thing. Anyway, so the fifth plague is, is disease on the livestock. The creation god Ptah 
was represented by a living bull, one of Egypt's greatest mother goddesses with Hathor, depicted as a cow-headed goddess. Now this is, you know, this sounds like fun. This sounds like hilarious, right? Do you want a goddess that has a cow head? You know, sometimes I, I know God has a humor, sense of humor. Because he's making these things look to be absolutely ridiculous like they are, these gods. And it's all an attack on the Egyptians' gods and their belief system. Going back to or up to the belief in Pharaoh as the son of God, God on earth. The sixth plague was boils. Boils came over all of the creatures. The goddess for that is Sekhmet. She was, she was believed to control the healing of people and bringing about healing and also medicines as well. Overseeing medicines, even to the point that they would sacrifice human lives, human beings, to these goddesses, and then take their ashes after they'd been burned on the altar and spread them in the air so the ashes would fall on people and heal them of diseases. So what did God do? Scattered the ashes from the furnaces and caused boils to come on the people. God was refuting that God as well. Our God, Big G, was refuting Little G. Seventh plague was hail, Egyptian goddess Newt. This would have been very unusual as this land very rarely had rain, let alone storms like like hail. The gods, which gods did this expose? Since God originated in the sky, the most prominent was one was the sky goddess Newt. In fact, she's depicted here as arching over the earth and everything in it. The, the goddess was depicted as that. But she wasn't the only Egyptian god discredited by this plague. There was also Shu, the god of the air, in bearer of heaven. There was Horus, the hawk-like, hawk-headed third member of the Egyptian trinity. There was Seth, the god of storms. There was Nippur, the god of grain crops, or, or Osiris, who was the ruler of life and vegetation. So all of these, God was attacking all of these little gods of Egyptian lore and showing that they're basically ineffective. The eight plagues, eighth plague is locusts. This was in direct conflict or a direct opposition, direct defeat, defeat of the Egyptian god Nepri. Nepri was known as the god of the grain. And so when the locusts came on the plants and ate up what was left of the grain that had not been devoured, beaten down by the hail and not had not had been destroyed like the cattle, the Egyptians had nothing to live on. Ninth plague was darkness. This again was in direct conflict to Amun-Ra, the sun god. 
the God that supposedly kept control of everything. And you see the darkness if you read, and I would urge you to read through these things. It's just amazing to think that all of this that happened, especially this one, think of this. The darkness was so thick they couldn't see each other in their rooms. If you had a candle, no light would emanate from that candle. It was complete darkness. I don't know if you've ever been in a completely dark room with absolutely no light on. You don't even have your cell phone on to give a light. If you're in an absolute dark room that you don't know what's there, what do you do? You do not move. You're afraid, who's there that's going to get me, the boogeyman? Or what am I going to trip over? Or I know my wife just moved the couch or something like that. There's complete darkness and there was absolute fear. And in this dark darkness, Amun-Ra was silent. Nothing could be seen anywhere. So those are the first nine plagues. First nine plagues. But the last one was the one that was supreme over all of it. In the first nine plagues, God is challenging all of the little gods of all of this. He's defeating what the Egyptians were worshiping. They had all of their, all of their thought and all of their, their, everything about life was dependent on these hundreds of gods. But in the tenth plague, God strikes down the firstborn of all, firstborn male of all, every household. In all of the livestock, all the animals, the oxen, the donkeys, everything, the firstborn male was stricken dead. So, the Egyptian goddess Isis is the god of life, the god of fertility, the god of birth. This is this was probably a an, a, a challenge to that, but I think even more than that, this was a challenge to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as I said, was the son of God, supposedly the son of Ra. He was the God on earth. And so when Pharaoh died, who would become the new Pharaoh? His firstborn son. So when God strikes the firstborn male of every household, including Pharaoh's household, what God says to Pharaoh is, Okay, you think you're God, watch this. You have nobody to follow you now. There is no other God to come except me. So God is, is working on all this, and the thing that what he is wanting to teach us and all of them through this is that so that the world may know that I am, am God. God is, in all of these plagues, God is doing a direct conflict or direct competition and di direct defeat of his people. And now, finally, all of the gods of Egypt have been silenced. Even the Pharaoh has been silenced. And with this plague, the Pharaoh finally relents and lets the Israelites go. This forced Pharaoh to act against his own will, and it would demonstrate God's overthrow of his sovereignty and of the gods who represented him. But all of these false gods were judged and proven powerless. But yet there's one problem with all of this. Even after all of that, 
after Pharaoh said, okay, you can go into the wilderness, what does Pharaoh do? After they've gone out, oh man, I just lost my entire workforce. Let's go get them, guys. So Pharaoh starts going out after, after him, and then we come to the final judgment of Pharaoh. The death of the firstborn was last plague, but it was not the final judgment. One major God remained to be judged, and that was Pharaoh himself, God himself, their God, their creator God, their son of God, their God on earth. And so continue to the story, the Israelites have left Egypt. Pharaoh once again changes his mind. He sets out with 600 of the best chariots, plus all of the other chariots of Egypt, possibly several thousands in all, chasing after the Israelites to return them to slavery. They were cornered at the sea, but God delayed them by a pillar of fire at nine, a cloud by, cloud by day. And while during the night they escaped through the Red Sea on dry ground when God parted the waters. Remember that story, right? You know, it's interesting that, that people say that, well, that's really, and in fact, if you go over there now in the Red Sea, in the middle of the Red Sea, there's actually a, a land bridge that goes under the water. You can see it, and the waters would have parted on both sides. We don't know of mighty winds, of course, the scripture says, mighty wind. But in that land bridge, underneath the, underneath the Red Sea, are hundreds of chariots, wheels, and pieces of chariots. Interesting from that time, from that period. But there are people that say, well, he really didn't go across the Red Sea. They went across the Sea of Reeds, which was the northern part, which was very shallow, and there were times of the year as only a few inches deep. So they would walk through the Sea of Reeds in just a few inches of water. Well, that's amazing if you want to tell the story that way, but I want to tell you another miracle. If, in fact, they did go through the Sea of Reeds in three inches of water, two to three inches of water, how did all of Pharaoh's armies drown in three inches of water? So you can tell me all your stories. People can tell you all your stories about what they believe it really was. But to me, that's as much a miracle as anything. Pharaohs were literally considered gods, sons of the divine incarnation of God. Their greatest responsibility was to keep everything in order, including the hundreds of gods and goddesses of them. So when God defeated Pharaoh, who thought he was God, it was complete judgment. So what is that lesson? What do the lessons have for us? First of all, we must realize that God takes sin very seriously. The severity of the plagues in Egypt shows how seriously God took their sins. Yet it's not just the sins of the Egyptian that God abhors. He hates any sin. We must never minimize the sin in our lives. Any sin is, is failure. Any sin is serious. And if we don't repent it, it brings eternal death. Second, God is patient, giving us time to repent, but his, repent, but his patience has limits. It's long-suffering, but it's not going to last forever. And he gives warnings after warnings, as he did repeatedly with the Egyptians, over and over and over. In fact, the first three plagues, 
struck the Israelites as well as Egypt, but after the first three plagues, they were all against Egyptians. And what follows then is God's fearsome judgment. Three, many people turn to God in a time of calamity, but when things get better, they almost immediately turn away. <laughs> Doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that the way of our life? 9-11. Why would God let this happen? I mean, the churches were crowded for two weeks after 9-11. But then things got a little bit quiet. Number four, God is trying to get our attention. Question is, are we listening? Remember that the Israelites were victims of the first three plagues along with the Egyptians. God had to shake them up and get their attention back to him. You know, the last one, he got their attention to him. He, called, caused, he created the Passover, where he had them put blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their house, and the angel of death would pass over their houses if they saw the sign of the blood. Was that the blood of the firstborn? Or signifying the blood of Christ, who was the firstborn of God? Number five, God requires obedience, not just belief. How were the Israelites spared from the death of the death of the firstborn, they had to act. They had to do exactly what God told them. And if we don't do what God tells us, what do we understand? We understand that that's a sin. Number six question is, what are your gods? A false god is anything that comes between you and the one true God. What are the idols that stand between you and your God? Your job? Hobbies? Sports? Entertainment, jobs of con or gods of convenience, gods of comfort, and seven, our all-powerful God is in complete control. Even after all this, we understand pure and simply God is in complete control. We see it throughout the plagues. He directed everything. He caused everything. He told Moses when they were going to happen so Moses could even tell the Pharaoh. And we could take great comfort and hope in that, that God is in control. Here's what I want to leave with you. God is God and we're not. Isn't that great? And why is God God and we're not? Why does God do all this? Why did he do all this with the Egyptians? Keep this in mind. God did it so that the world may know that I am God, that he is God. That's our lesson for us. All that God is doing in and through us, even what's happening in Israel right now, telling you God is in control, and God wants us to know that he's still God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this time, we've been kind of a history lesson, Father, and yet we understand that it's more than a history lesson. It's understanding of, of, of the fact that you came and in these plagues, you defeated all of the other gods of history just to prove to us and to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that you are the only God. We have so many things that stand in our way on every day. We have so many things that take our attention away from you, but yet you are the only God. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our attention on you and only you. In Jesus' name, amen.